0: Cheers, voices, and miracles, some novel thoughts on healing. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Larry Dossi. Dr. Dossi is an internist and former chief of staff of Medical City Dallas Hospital. He's also the author of nine books, including a New York Times bestseller, His most recent book, The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, was published last year by Random House. Dr. Dossi is past president of the Isthmus Institute of Dallas, an organization dedicated to exploring the possible convergences of science and religious thought. Dr. Dossi lives in Santa Fe and comes to us today from New Mexico. Larry, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Dr. Cohn, for asking me.
0: One of the things that is kind of different for us as docs thinking about is uh, this idea of tears and crying you actually talk about two kinds of tears
1: actually believe it or not tear researchers out there <laughs> really <laughs> these days who love to study this and they have analyzed two different kinds of tears which they call irritant tears which is what happens when you you know cut onions versus emotional tears which are in response to uh, deep emotion And the chemical composition of these things are really quite different. No kidding. The emotional tears actually have lots of toxins. Uh, Even trace heavy metals uh, come out when people cry emotional tears. You don't see these kinds of compositional changes in people who cry irritant tears. They don't carry many toxins out of the body. But I've often wondered, you know whether or not tears evolved as a kind of detoxification mechanism i mean we we have this folk saying that we feel all cleaned out after a good cry. Mm-hmm. You know hear people say that, so there may be something to that
0: well, heavy metals aside, we all know that real men don't cry and kids are <laughs> cry babies. But you say there's actual scientific evidence that emotional tears are good for us.
1: Well, the blockbuster study of the past few years came out of Japan uh, looking at this. This had to do with a group of rheumatoid patients who were studied in Tokyo by physicians, and they exposed these rheumatoid patients to emotionally evocative pictures that were just so wrenching that they would make many people shed tears. They found out that among these rheumatoid patients, some of the patients could not permit themselves to cry in response to these emotional stimuli, while the other rheumatoid patients cried freely then they followed these patients over a few months and had them keep track of the number of times they cried in their daily life. And As it turned out, the clinical courses of the rheumatoid patients differed according to their ability or willingness to cry. Hmm. The people who cried freely had fewer hot joints. They consumed fewer pain medications. They even looked at some immune indicators. They found out that their CD4 counts and CD8 cells and their natural killer cells all went in the right direction. They found out that inflammatory indices such as sedimentation rates and so on went down indicating lesser degrees of inflammation in these people who permitted themselves to cry. So they were willing to say that there's a profound correlation between one's willingness to shed tears and the course of this specific illness. I think probably something general is going on here as this work is extended to other illnesses. I doubt that it will be limited just to rheumatoid disease. Mm. But that's uh, one of the studies that really has strongly suggested that we ought to pay more attention to our emotional lives, as indicated by our willingness to cry and our uh, health.
0: That's fascinating. If you are just joining us, you're listening to the Clinicians Roundtable on M D. XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Dossi, and we're talking about tears, voices, and miracles. Well, let's talk about voices. This should be of some interest to our psychiatric colleagues out there. The way I was brought up, Larry, if you hear voices, they are usually considered schizophrenic, yet in your book, you differ. Can you explain a little bit about that?
1: If you hear voices, voice, you're liable to get medicated at the best or locked up at worst. The thing that captured my attention about the potential health value of hearing voices was a case that was published in the British Medical Journal in 1997 in which a perfectly healthy woman began to hear a voice inside her head which told her that she needed medical tests. The voices told her that she needed a CAT scan of her brain and they gave her a specific address to go to have this done this woman thought she was going nuts she went to a psychiatrist and told him the whole story and the physical examination and the psychiatric examination of this woman was totally normal so the doctor went along with this he said well why don't you just get this cat scan well she did and she had a midline tumor and the voices suggested it would be a great idea if she had surgery So she went along with the voices every step of the way. And then after the surgery, and this was not an invasive tumor, the voices said, thank you for listening. Uh, We're happy that you followed our advice, and we wish you well. The voices stopped. They went away. They never came back. This case really stunned me, and I began to poke around the literature and see what people had written about helpful voices, It turns out that about 15% of the American population on private surveys admits to hearing voices. You know, a lot of people aren't talking about this.
0: Uh, I guess.
1: (laughs) About 1% of the population is schizophrenic, surveys show. So we know that most of these people aren't crazy. Now, if you look at what's been done here, you find some interesting stories. My friend Barbara Barnum, who is a nursing scholar, looked at 120 nursing hotshots around the country. These nursing scholars all had PhDs or master's level degrees. As it turned out, about half of these nurses uh, had had mystical experiences which often involved hearing voices. These women weren't nuts. They were at the peak of their profession and many of them were willing to talk about this. Sometimes these voices were associated with actual visions of people who had been deceased Some of them described the voices, which gave them life-saving information. And so it simply makes us wonder, you know, are we missing something here in human personality, human psyche that we ought to be paying more attention to? The problem is that the stigma associated with voices and going public about these things just makes it almost impossible for people to talk freely about them
0: well, that concept leads us nicely into an interesting topic we can close with and a topic that you closed your book with, which is entitled uh, Miracles. I guess it's fair to say that religious people believe in them, but scientists and uh, doctors, are scientists, we don't, at least that's what we've been led to believe. Is that true in your experience?
1: Yeah, I think it is true. I don't, in the book, get near the religious issues surrounding what people think about miracles, about What I wanted to do in the book was to let people know that these things probably are not as rare as we've been led to believe. When I was at medical school, I got the message that you'll probably go all of your life as a doctor and never see one of these things. I just uh, think we've underestimated their frequency. There's a book called Spontaneous Remissions, which documents almost 4,000 of these that have popped up in the medical literature over the years. Most of them Are not in mainstream medical journals, but are in specialty journals, which most of us don't read as clinicians. And so I think it's easy to miss some of these things. So I go into one case in particular at length in the book just to give people a feeling for how spectacular these can be. Would you like for me to just briefly describe that? Yeah,
0: yeah. Maybe an example or two would be great.
1: Yeah. This dealt with a woman named Rita Klaus, who grew up in a little tiny town outside of Pittsburgh. This woman was quite religious growing up. She actually became a nun. But while she was in the convent in her early 20s, she developed multiple sclerosis. This was a terrifically fast, rapidly progressive case of MS. Pretty soon she wound up in a wheelchair. She was in metal braces. She couldn't stand without assistance. And the prediction was that it was just a short period of time before she would be bedbound by this. She lost her faith, she quit the convent, she rejected all of her earlier religious teachings and commitments. She went back to college and got a degree in biology, became a biology teacher in high school to support herself. And this went on and she wound up with a team of neurologists and orthopedists and so on to try to keep her functional. Uh, She even had tendon release procedures below the uh, patella to try to give her a little bit of motion in her knees, This caused the patellas on both sides to drift over to the lateral side of the knees. And then someone told her she should go to Medjugorje uh, in former Yugoslavia, where miracles had been reported. People gave her money to make the trip. She went. She went through all the rituals, but nothing happened, and she came back home. And then one night, in a dream, she had a dream of the Virgin Mary, who said in the dream, Rita, why don't you simply ask for a healing? Well, in the dream, she did. The next day, she was sitting in her wheelchair and teaching biology at high school, and she looked down and she saw her toes moving. She thought this was just muscle spasm. But then she looked, and the patellas on both sides had drifted over into their normal position. She had somebody carry her home. her in her wheelchair in her living room. She said, if there's something really going on here, I can run up these 13 steps. She did. Then she ran back down them. She ran out the front door of her house, jumped a little creek, fell down, got muddy, came back in and called her priest, who was horrified. He told her to lie down and uh, take aspirin and call her doctor. She called her best friend, uh, who came over and verified all of this, then, a couple of days later, her husband took her to the local hospital where all of her subspecialists were. Some of her doctors were speechless and overjoyed. One neurologist in particular was horrified. He claimed that she was a fake and a fraud and had a <laughs> twin sister who had been playing tricks on them. <laughs> Just to say we physicians don't handle these kinds of things yeah. Very, yeah. very gracefully. But this, Gary, is a uh, case that now has been followed up for many, many years. How do you explain that? I mean, that's one of those... Knock your socks off clinical things that aren't supposed to happen but occasionally do. I talk about several more equally astounding that have been verified medically and written up in the book. I just think that it's kind of important to bring these things out because it does give some people hope. Of course, the danger is we don't want to oversell these things, you know, right. and create what's been called false hope. But on the other hand, I think one can be too conservative, and it's not right either, I think, to conceal these things.
0: I think uh, that has given us much to think about today. Um, I I very much appreciate uh, your bringing those to our attention and and to our audience. My, My thanks to Dr. Larry Dossey, who's been our guest. We've been discussing tears, voices, and miracles, some novel thoughts on healing. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening.